Welcome to the Startup Grind podcast. Startup Grind is the world's largest independent startup community, inspiring, educating, and connecting millions of entrepreneurs across the globe in partnership with Google for Startups. These are the stories of disruptors, innovators, and game changers from the fastest high-growth companies and venture capital firms in existence. Join us as we unpack their strategies, learn from their mistakes, and grow together. There's no time to wait, so let's begin. Hey all, Chris Jonu here, back at it again, and uh, we have our homegrown hero from Melbourne, Australia, um, in Tony Wheeler, the co-founder of Lonely Planet, and um, he was one of my favorite founders, and uh, you'll see why, just a really genuine guy and an incredible human being. And he goes through the story of, you know, the trip he took with his wife doing this kind of hippie trail thing through Asia um, and writing about their stories and, and that becoming the first Lonely Planet guidebook, um, you know, through to becoming uh, the world's largest independent guidebook publisher, selling over 150 million books in English alone and, uh, and the exit to the BBC. So just incredible, incredible story. Um, the... The segue to the interview is a bit choppy, and you'll see. But um, the reason I mention that is that um, at the beginning of the beginning of the um, interview there was a presentation. So I highly recommend going over YouTube if you love the interview to see his presentation. Uh, we were lucky enough to convince him to bring some of his photos, and he goes through them. And um, if anyone's going to have um, you know, the, one of the best photo albums in the world, it's going to be the founders of Lonely Planet. And uh, he didn't disappoint. It is uh, um, something that I highly recommend checking out on YouTube. Obviously, very visual, so not great for the for the podcasting medium. But uh, enjoy the interview and check out that YouTube clip. Cheers. We were a little company in, in Melbourne, you know, and the big companies are in New York and London. And we couldn't compete with them, so we had to do things they weren't doing. So very much it was... If they're doing France and Mexico, which is you know, big enough, and Spain and so on, we're going to do Pakistan and Nepal and Thailand. And later on, of course, Thailand became a huge destination, but it wasn't when we started. So we were looking for the unusual things, the out-of-the-way things, uh, but also because we loved those things. You know, we, we didn't want to go to Europe. We wanted to, go to, we wanted to go to Asia or South America or Africa. So it was partly... You know, it, it was the right thing to do, going to the, the unusual things, looking for the niche. But it was also because that's what we really enjoyed. So this is good, good segue, business stuff. Um, sit down, please. Let's do it. Um, I'll try and continue to fireside chat mode right now. But, uh, um, and we'll take questions, so please, yeah. Um, so can we, can we go back, you know, we've got a lot of entrepreneurs in the, in the audience and, and whatnot, and, and talk about some of the, you know, you touched on it here, but the, the scaling of Lonely Planet. And I guess what was, what was the first big win after you had these, these publications? The, 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 the first really big win was we did a guidebook to India. And, you know, we'd, we'd started off and we'd, but there were little books we were doing. They were, you know, in pages. They were two or three hundred pages. And back then they were selling for $2.95 or $3.95. Now it'd be 20 bucks. But, you know, they were, they were small. Um, and then in 1980, so we've been going, we did the first book in, really, we, the company really started in 75 when we came back from that Asia trip. So we've been going about five years and we, we decided we could afford doing an India book and we put three people into India. Um, Maureen and I were one of the three and two other writers. One of them was that bit guide writer. 
And we, the two others, we gave them $1,000 each. We said, here's 1000 bucks. go off and spend four months in India and research it, you know, and you'll, you'll make money further down the line. <laughs> That's it for now. Um, and, you know, we did this book, and instead of being 200 pages, it was more like 700. And instead of selling for 295, it sold for 14.95. And instead of selling 20, by that, by that point, the books were selling 20,000 copies or 30,000 copies. We'd, the very first one we did was 1,500 copies. They were selling 20 or 30,000 copies, and someday this book sold 100,000 copies. So it was sort of a, it was a, you know, a factor of 10 more expensive, and it was a factor of 10 more sales. So suddenly, boom, we, and then we took on more, and we said, okay, you guys go to Indonesia, you go to China, you go there and do this and that. But it was still print, yes. you know, and, and that was print for a long time. I see the digital disruption questions come up here. You know, we were very early into computers, and doing, guidebooks were perfect for computers, because it, they, they weren't like a novel. You, know, you write it, and that's it forever. Guidebooks, every, every two years, we updated them every two years, you've got to do the whole thing again. So having it all on a computer was perfect. But to be fair, you kind of exited before like, things started gaining momentum. Well, we, we did, you know, we did a 94, um, Maureen and I, we, we, we had a US office by this point. We were starting to do guides to America. And we actually lived in America in the 80s for a year when we set up the American office. We went there and lived in San Francisco for a year. And 94, we decided, let's do a trip driving across America. We, we had kids by this point, school holidays, we'll, we'll go to America, we'll buy an old American car. We bought a 59 Cadillac. This car had no brakes to speak of, but it had a cigarette lighter for every seat. You know, <laughs> and it was 25 years old then, so it was an old car in those days. But um, we, we started off from um, in California, and we knew the people from um, O'Reilly Publications. The guy who you know, Tim O'Reilly, who invented the word, you know, net 2.0. Um, we knew Tim O'Reilly, and we, we did a blog. You know, the word blog hadn't been invented, but we had a very primitive mobile phone, and we sent back, um, sent back text every day to, um, to Tim O'Reilly, um, and they, they had a thing called um, Global Network Navigator, which was one of the really early websites in 94. And we did this daily blog about our travels on it. So we were sort of there at the, the beginning of it. If you, if you hung around, do you think that's where you would have naturally... Well, gone? you know, I, I'm just looking today at what... I, I've got no, no ownership of Lonely Planet anymore. I still help write things for them occasionally, and I'm still in touch with them. But I just got the update today of what they're doing. You know, and a lot of their stuff now is online, and, you know, there's all sorts of apps and... Um, Guidebooks you can download. I mean, I, I, I bought a half dozen Lonely Panic. I get them free still. Amazing. <laughs> half dozen Lonely Panic guidebooks yesterday for my travels in the next few months, but not as books. I bought them to download on my iPad. You know, I, I read them as PDFs on my iPad, but there's all sorts of other apps. You can get them on your phone and everything else. And, you know, they're, they're doing all sorts of digital things, but amazingly, books are still where a lot of the money is. And the last four years, Despite the fact that book sales overall are going down, Lonely Planet's still going up. So they're getting a bigger share of a smaller market, but it's still, it's still working for them. Um, to kind of circle back around to, you know, growing this company out globally, and, and you, meant, you just mentioned that, you know, you'd send some of your employees on adventures and stuff. How, how do you, um, I always ask the question about scaling culture. How, how do you keep uh, 
the fun and the wraps and, and the, the serious head on? You know, the, a lot of it is you, people come, I, I always say, you know, if you want to get into any sort of business at all, do something you love. Because, you know, first of all, if it doesn't make any money, at least you've had a good time doing it. Um, and secondly, if you're doing something you love, everybody else picks on the, up on that as well. Now, they come to you because they can see you're enjoying it. And I, I don't think I've ever seen a really successful business, whether it's making fast cars or wooden bicycles or um, camera drones, where it isn't the people doing it because they're in love with doing it. And I think every, you know, I, I have, I spent 45 minutes with Bill Gates once. You know, and he didn't set out to be the richest man in the world because he wanted to be the richest man in the world. He set out because he was a computer geek who loved doing computer stuff. And I think that's true of any sort of business. So if you do something you love, and then the people who come to work with you, they've come to you because they love what you're doing as well. They, they want to work with you because they, they believe in the same things that you believe in. So it's, you know, self-actualizing in a way. Can I ask another question that kind of comes up, I guess, in startup land too, where it's uh, quite common to talk about, you know, the venture capitalist wants two, two founders and one's usually business, one's technical and so on and so forth. Mate, that's the way to do it. Keep I know, going. Just, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're right there. I just have to reach yeah, no, over. Easy. easy. Um, your founder, your co-founder, and you know, um, is your wife. Yeah, yeah, and we've, and you know, Maureen and I have often talked about this. That how, how did we manage to stay married over these years? And really, the thing is, we, I think, any business where there's two of you, whether it's business partners or, in our case, husband and wife. You've got to sort of demark, you're doing this and I'm doing that. And, you know, we're not going to step on each other's toes. And, you know, it, I, I got the MBA, but really she's far more business-like than I am. Um, and I was the sort of, I was always... You know, a, I always ask for her to talk to you. I know, I she never comes. No. <laughs> she doesn't want to. She's, I mean, Maureen's view on this is I've been there, I've done it, I don't want to talk about it anymore. Um, and, you know, she, she was the more business-like one and she's much better at that stuff. You know, she's on... The, she, she's the president of the Melbourne Arts Festival, you know, and she's got to keep everybody in line and, and keep the government on side as well. I couldn't do that stuff. I would just, it would drive me up the wall. You know, I, I, what, what I, I, I enjoy, I love putting the books together, you know. I, I love getting the idea for it and getting the team together who are going to do it. And then I love doing it myself as well, going out there and researching it and so on. So I love that creative side of it. But the business side of it, I was hopeless at. You, know, you had to have somebody else who could do that, and she was it. Perfect. Um, last time we sat in here for the December event, we had the founder of Red Bubble, Martin Hoskin, sitting here, and uh, I asked him the question about work-life balance. So I'll get in there too, and it was quite refresh refreshing to hear him. You know, more often than not, it's this kind of work hard till you die and and kind of mantra. And and he was quite the opposite, and he was doesn't didn't answer emails on the weekend, and very much wanted his staff to go home at 5 p.m. What is your take on work-life balance for the entrepreneur? And, and I, you know, yeah. I, I think a lot of people who are entrepreneurial, they're doing something that they love so much. If they weren't, if they weren't getting paid for it, they'd still be doing it. You know, and I, I just always, I just, the whole time I was doing the, the books, I loved doing them. And I still love travel. You know, I, I'm really disappointed if, I, if a year goes by, I don't get to go to a few new places. I, I'm going to Eritrea in a month's time. I've never been to Eritrea and you know the the architecture in Asmara is really fascinating and you know I, I really want to see it and I've got a couple other trips later in the year which isn't like I've got some real fascination about the place but I've never been there and it's sort of 
Why have I never been there? I should. So, you know, I, I still have this fascination of going places, much more so than Maureen does. Maureen says, you go. You know, she <laughs> doesn't want to. There are lots of places I go to. She doesn't. When I, when I did the book Badlands, um, I really had to go to Iraq. If I was going to you know, go to the places that, um, that um, George Bush had said were seriously bad, evil, I had to go to Iraq. But Iraq wasn't really the best place to go to at that time. Um, and I, um, I, I, was, I, had to, I was speaking at a conference in Singapore, and then a week later I was speaking at a conference in, in Washington, D.C., both tourism conferences. And I thought, Singapore? Washington DC, what's right in between them? Iraq. I'll just, um, I'll just drop in in Iraq, which is what I did. And, um, but I hadn't told Maureen I was going there. So, um, <laughs> so I, I, uh, I got to the border between Turkey and Iraq, and there's, they've got a big, yeah, it's going to the Kurdistan region, and um, there's a big sign up saying, welcome to the Kurdish region of Iraq. So I got to the, um, the Peshmerga soldiers to you know, stand beside me with their guns on each side and my taxi driver to photo, do a, a, sort of a selfie. And I said to Maureen, I said, oh, I, I, I stopped off on my way to Washington, D.C. <laughs> Here I am. <laughs> I've only been in Iraq for a few days. <laughs> it'll, it'll all be fine. <laughs> and it was. <laughs> Places are never, never as bad as the media says. That's my view. <laughs> is, it, is, it, is there a lot of pressure off, or do you find that you enjoy these trips much more than now that you don't have writing deadlines, or you just can't help but write anyway? I, I write anyway, you know, if I, if I go there and I find something wrong, I still travel with the Lonely Planet guides, you know, I find something wrong, I, um, you know, <laughs> I, I write and tell them about it. <laughs> um, and there, there's always something, you know, that you pick up on. And, no, I, I still really enjoy it, and I, you know, if I, was, if I wasn't doing this, I'd be doing this, so really? there you go. <laughs> Let me get some of these questions going. Um, yeah, this is a good question. As, I was, as you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, I think anyone that's traveled a little bit has found themselves in some unique situations. I think you'd be in some more than most. And so what are some of the craziest situations you've found? Yourself? Well, you know, most of the dodgy situations are always, in, you're always in taxis. You know, and you can, it can be right here in Melbourne. You know, there's been more Melbourne taxi drivers. I think, where did you learn to drive? You know? Uber, I've got to say, Uber has better drivers than, than the yellow ones. I'm not surprised they've done so well in Melbourne. And, you know, other places in the world, I, you know, I'm equally happy in the taxis or Uber. But here, I've got to say my money's on Uber. <laughs> um, yeah, do dodgy situations have been... And you know, I've never had a serious thing. I've been mugged once or twice, but <laughs> never seriously. No one's really... I held a knife to me once in Colombia. Um, but... Um, well, tell me the story. You can't, just, you can't brush over the knife into the throat in Colombia. That's the it's only like... time. You know, every time I, I, I've had things stolen a few times, and it's always been from my own carelessness. You know, you you get pickpocketed. It's because you're not paying enough attention, or you, you know, you should never leave a bag on the seat of a car because that's an invitation to have your car broken into, or never leave things in hotel rooms unless you, you know, any time of anything stolen, except this one occasion in Colombia where. You know, I was, I, it seemed like a safe area. It seemed, you know, lots of people around. And suddenly this guy's, my, someone's standing in front of me and someone behind me has got a knife. And I gave them my camera. Unfortunately, they didn't get my phone. They didn't get my wallet. They didn't get, my, didn't get anything important at all. You can get another camera quite easily. I missed the photographs I took that day, but there you go. <laughs> Back up regularly. <laughs> What, what, is your, uh, what is the best preparation going to these dangerous countries? Oh, look, read up on them. And I, I always do read up on them. But um, 
My view is that they're never as dangerous as... Um, actually, you know, the, the dangerous country that I've never been to, that I... I, I people say, you know, where have, where have you not been to you want to, is Yemen. And I just regret that I... Why have I not been to Yemen? Because they've been... You know, Yemen is... Right now, it's just terrible. But, you know, it's, it's, ne it's never been terrific. But it's been sort of up and down. And every time when it's been a little bit up, for some reason, I didn't get there. And it just seems like everybody I know who's been to Yemen is a really interesting person. You know, they, they, I just, I've met, I've met archaeologists who've been there. It's got amazing archaeology. It's got these mud skyscrapers. You know, they're, they're mud construction, but they're skyscrapers. And you look at these photographs of um, the cities in Yemen, and you think, well, I want to go there. But I've never been there. And I, I really want to one day. <laughs> so I hope it gets better again. Yeah, I would. Who has been to Yemen here? There you go. There you go. See, at least. Well, I haven't, but just an easy. Yeah, go ahead. Is this stand up comedy? <laughs> It's a, Makes it more desirable. I know, <laughs> and, you know about oh, must be 15 years ago, I was, when, when Yemen was okay, I was at a, a tourism thing in Sydney and I was talking about, and Yemen came up. And um, somebody, you know, over, over this side of the room said, well, I went to Yemen last year and I got kidnapped. And someone <laughs> over this side said, oh, I got kidnapped too. <laughs> and it almost seemed like if you went to Yemen and you didn't get kidnapped, you went to your travel agency, I didn't get kidnapped, why not? <laughs> And funnily enough, I'm actually reading a book at the, the moment, and, and um, in this, uh, this book, this guy goes to Yemen, only about four years ago, and, he said, and he's talking to someone in Yemen, and they're saying, you know, so many people got kidnapped in Yemen, people were complaining if they didn't get kidnapped. And so, yeah, who knows, maybe Yemen's like that. <laughs> Can I, I'm going to just sidetrack for, for a second here, and I, I, we haven't touched quite, you know, you, 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 you touched on it on a few slides, but your the work that you do with charities and some of these foundations and stuff, um, what, what are some of your most proud moments with some of the... the you know? Well, you know, some of them... Well, one of the first ones we got involved with was um, SurfAid. And this was um, Nias Island off the coast of West Sumatra, which um, is a popular place for, for surfers, you know, great waves and so on. And um, surfers are, you know, they're... A lot of them have got a lot of money. They can sort of go off and surf around. And a surprising number of doctors are surfers. And some doctors have been there. And they'd, when the waves were bad, they, they got sort of called into the local village to do a little bit of um, medical help. And they were thinking, you know, we're, we're, we're surfers and we're wealthy to be from Australia here having a holiday and surfing. You know, maybe we should put something back into um, medical assistance in these places. And they started an organization called SurfAid. And Lonely Planet was one of the first people to put money into SurfAid. And, you know, and I, I'm pretty sure it's still going, but it was a really good project. And I've seen this in, I've seen this in, um, in Nepal. Um, Fred Hollows, who started the um, cataract surgery thing, you know, that was in Nepal. And a lot of that was because a lot of doctors go trekking in Nepal, and they see that Nepal has a lot of problems with you know, eye, eye cataracts and things. And um, as that happens there, it's similar things have happened in Ethiopia. I've been to um, 
I've been to quite a few places where this has happened, where doctors have been traveling and thought, well, hey, we should put some effort back into this. I know a, a really fancy resort in um, Fiji, Turtle Island. And um, once a year, Turtle Island closes down the resort for two weeks, and they bring all these doctors in, and they put this message out for all the islands around that area that we've got a two-week sort of surgery camp, and if you need something done, you know, you've got a kid with a cleft palate, come into this place and you can probably get it done in the next two weeks. And all these doctors come in there and they stay in the wonderful rooms at Turtle Island, and you know, they do two weeks of surgery. When, when, when I think Lonely Planet, I think it, almost think it kind of goes hand in hand, the, the philanthropic work, or I think it's kind of woven into your DNA. Is, yeah. when, when did this, was it from traveling that you wanted to give traveling. back? It was traveling. Yeah, and what started it was, you know, the live aid thing in Ethiopia. That um, I'm just going to tell an Ethiopia story in a minute. Um, you know, we did, all that famine was going on, and the you know, rock stars were getting up and doing things in Ethiopia. And we thought we're making money out of Africa with a guidebook to there. We should put some money back in. And we just we, it was Friday night, you know, after pub session after the um, the office closed on Friday, and Maureen and I and Jim, our partner, we said, well, why don't we put a percentage of our profits each year back into projects in the places that we're doing books about. And we you know, started up there and then doing that. Um, and it was just because we, the business had got, at that stage, wealthy enough that it could do it. And we carried on ever since. And then when we sold the business, we, we couldn't say you've bought a charity as well as a business. So we pulled it out of Lonely Planet. And, but if I go, I said I'd tell an Ethiopia story. If I go back and say the proudest moment I've got from Lonely Planet was um, Ethiopia. And you know, there was that long civil war there, Mengistu, who was the, um, the evil dictator. And he was supported by the Soviet Union, and then the Soviet Union was falling apart, and the rebels were closing in on Addis Ababa. And, um, and Mengistu now is living in um, Harare in Zimbabwe, because Mugabe looked after him for years, and I don't know what's going to happen to him long term. Anyway, Mengistu was about to fall over, and the, the rebels had captured these tanks, and they were closing in on Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia. And there was one journalist who wrote a book about it called um, The Zanzibar Chest. Um, and he was the only um, journalist who was with the rebels. And when they were about a day or two outside of Addis Ababa, the rebel commander came over to him and said, he said, look, we've got a real problem. We've got these Russian tanks we've captured and all these men, he said, but my men, most of them have never been in Addis Ababa. And, you know, and it was 20 years ago when I was young that I was last there. And we're afraid we're going to get into Addis Ababa and we're going to get lost on the way to the, um, the, you know, the palace or the headquarters to take over. And he said, we've got no idea how to get, find our way through Addis Ababa. And this guy who wrote the book said, he said, the only thing I had was my Lonely Planet guidebook. <laughs> but he said, it had a map of Addis Ababa in it. And he said, and they had a photocopier, and they took it away, and they photocopied the map, and they distributed the map around all the tanks. So as the tanks were driving into Addis Ababa, they were following the Lonely Planet map. <laughs> and I thought, great, you know, we, we, get to, we recommend cheap hotels, nice restaurants, and occasionally we get to overthrow governments. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Turned by the cheap hotel, missed that restaurant, and there's the palace. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, 
Any regrets about selling the company to BBCs? I guess, great question, because you've got a lot of yeah. entrepreneurs in the audience looking for that yeah. big exit and stuff, you know? Yeah, well, we, you know, we sold to BBC worldwide, and we thought that the BBC were a, a great buyer, and then it just, it all went wrong. And, you know, they, they were, it was, all this politics were involved, and it, it turned out we just sold it at a time when the, you know, the BBC sort of, go, everybody loves it, and then government changes, and everybody hates it, and it's up and down, and it was not a good time. And, and instead of sort of getting into the driver's seat and putting their foot down, they sort of got into the driver's seat and started looking at the speed limit signs and driving really carefully. And, you know, the BBC had it for about five years and it really didn't go all that well. And then they sold it to these Americans. And remarkably, I, I was at the Lonely Planet office in London a few a couple of months ago and um, they were saying it's all much better now with the Americans owning it than the BBC. So at the moment, you know, it, it's, it seems to be working fine. Was there that, you know, that bit of... Was there regret? Yeah. Yeah, you know, it was time to change. I mean, and what we say that, you know, we, we loved running the business the whole time. And the business was definitely becoming more digital. And I, I said about loving what you're doing, you know, and we were, we, we loved the digital stuff from the start, but we weren't obsessed with it. That wasn't, you know, that it was the 18-year-olds who were obsessed with it. And we weren't 18 years old anymore. And um, we thought, time for a change. Brilliant. So I don't regret selling out, but you know, there you go. Um, if you could recommend any single location to travel to, where would it be? I think you mentioned a few, but this is like a, like a loaded question. I, I, do you know, I, I, love them, I love them all, and I, I love going back to places that, you know, you, who doesn't like going back to Italy? You know, and I've, you, you love going back there, and you love doing these things again. And... Um, so I, I love the go back to places as well, but also I love going somewhere new every year. The most recent new one I've been to, I went to Kiribati, which is one of those you know, places that it's only a meter above sea level and it's gonna disappear, but I just found it really interesting and I, I really had an interesting time in Kiribati. And so I, I like going to the un places I haven't been to before. That's what, what makes them interesting, but I like going back to places as well. So. I'm going back to Berlin in a couple of months. I mean, I've got some Berlin friends staying with me tomorrow. I'm going to jump one question here to this. Uh, it was interesting that you talked about the drones and uh, you know the bike. Is there a few investments that that, we should, that Tony Wheel has been doing along the way? That's kind and of know, venture capitalists in the background. Um, the, the the drone people. I've got no money in them, and I'm sort of listed on their thing of advisors. Um, chemical Media, which Lonely Planet had a television um, segment and um, was doing television stuff. And one of the things we thought was when the BBC took over, you know, BBC television, this would be the area that really grew. And instead, the total opposite happened because the BBC sat there thinking, ooh, if we put money into that, everyone will say that, you know, we're only doing, it's only doing well because it's got BBC money behind it. So instead of pushing it up, it sort of pushed it down. And the, um, eventually the people who ran Lonely Planet Television pulled out and set up a new company called Chemical Media, which I have invested in. But you know, it's not done wonders, but it's, it's fun to do. The bike, or the bike? Any, anyone that's coming here, that's, is there certain things you look for, or it's just like yeah. a... The, 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 um, the guy who did the bicycle, he, I, I met him, you know, he, he's, he's doing all sorts of other art things, and I. I met him and he said, I've just had this fascination about wooden bicycles and I've made more and more sophisticated ones and I've got to the stage now where I think I could actually make one, instead of just making them for myself, 
make one for somebody else. So the one that I showed the picture of, he actually made four of those. One for the Timber Council in Canberra. Two other people have bought them as well. But, you know, it was a, it was a sophisticated bicycle. And he did a beautiful job on it. And I, I ride it, you know, several times a week. You know, I'll be riding it over to Pran. No, I won't be riding to Pran tomorrow morning, but usually I, I ride to the gym on Wednesdays, usually. Um, Can't so, miss you, know, you. Can't miss you at all. Yeah, my wooden bicycle. All right, we'll take one last one here. Um, How many countries have you still across off your list? That's a question. Yeah, all right. Or, or we'll why that. did you call it Lonely Planet? Why did we call it Lonely Planet? We can, well, yeah. we'll answer both those. We called it Lonely Planet. We needed a name for the business. And um, we were in Sydney when we did the first book, and uh, we were at, we'd had a little bit too much red wine. Um, we were kicking around names, and we'd just been to see a movie called Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Um, rock and roll band on the road, Joe Cocker, now dead, Leon Russell, only died a year or so ago, um, going around America. And there was a song in the, the movie called Space Captain, and Joe Cocker sings, once while traveling across the sky, this lonely planet caught my eye. And I said to Maureen, doesn't that sound nice? Lonely planet catching my eye. Why don't we call it lonely planet? And she said, great idea. Except actually he sings lovely planet. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, it's been a mistake all those years. It's been, <laughs> it should, it, sorry about this, but it should have been lovely planet. Uh, I want everyone back on their feet and a big thank you to Tony for coming out tonight. Until next time, chase the vision and keep hustling.